What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Idaho has passed a law to restrict interstate travel for abortion care for minors. Joining us to discuss is Jessica Mason Piclo, Senior Vice President and Executive Editor of Rewire News Group. She also co-hosts the podcast Boom Lawyered with our friend Amani Gandhi. Good morning, Jessica, and thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you on the show. Jessica, all right, walk us through this new law. What does it do? Um, it is quite frankly, one of the largest expansions of, uh, state surveillance for a targeted group of individuals that we've seen in quite some time. It attempts to create a whole new class of crime called abortion trafficking, all in the guise of restricting broad scale bodily autonomy. I mean, those are the top lines of what's going on. And I noticed in the headlines that there was a lot of focus, uh, and rightly so, around the Texas uh, medication abortion ruling. And I think it's really important to be having these conversations in the same breath. Say say more, Jessica, because I was going to get to this later, Um, right? Like across the country, we are seeing these types of laws pop up and pass. Mm-hmm. Um, almost at a dizzying speed. And so I have, th- have three-part question for you, and then we'll go back to the specifics of the Idaho law. The first one, are we seeing people actually prosecuted for violating uh, these new anti-reproductive anti-repro- rights laws? That's the first question. And then the second question is, what kind of chill effect is this having on doctors, nurses, and other medical practitioners in the reproductive care field? Sure. Um, so in, to answer your first question, are we seeing people prosecuted yet? Um, it depends on which of the states and what of the laws we are talking about. Many of these, uh, so Idaho, for example, um, still has yet to have its governor's signature, but we are seeing folks um, targeted already. Dr. Caitlin Barnard in um, Indiana, for example, is uh, in the midst of a huge licensure fight for providing legal care um, in the midst of uh, the, that state's attempt to uh, ban abortion. She has referred uh, minor patients out for care and has spoke publicly about it. As a result, has come under fire from the conservative uh, attorney general in that state. We also know that before some of these most draconian bans were on the books, uh, women and people who had the capacity to birth were already targets of prosecution. We have, um, for example, Brittany Pulau in um in Oklahoma, who's currently serving a sentence, uh, a manslaughter sentence for having a miscarriage. Uh, So what, you know, in in terms of prosecuted yet, yes. Um, In terms of, say, for for transporting a minor outside of the state for care, no. Or in terms of, you know, some of the attempts that Texas has done um, or Missouri to yoke people back into the state um, around care, not that we know of. Um, But that doesn't mean that folks aren't looking for some. And then you asked a really important question, which is the chill effect. One of the absolute Um, clear strategies of the anti-choice movement right now is a chaos strategy. Um, Unleash as many 
um, laws as they possibly can in, in gerrymandered legislatures that are friendly to their cause, launch as many lawsuits as they can in the federal in the federal courts that are also friendly to their cause and make sure that one of the results is widespread confusion around the state of le of legality of abortion generally, medication abortion um, specifically right now after this weekend, and also wh what people's rights are in their specific localities. Um, it's a very real strategy. It's the strategy of authoritarianism, and it's one of the things that I hope people start to clue in more and more on. We are seeing it harder for folks to get medical training to provide uh, full-scale uh, reproductive health care. And, you know, folks need to understand that abortion is part of pregnancy management. So if we have folks who aren't trained in abortion care, they don't know what to do and how to treat a miscarriage. Those are some of the devastating effects just immediately. Well, let's talk about long term, Jessica, like if this trend continues, you know, as every time I have this conversation uh, on the show, I'm watching my 17 year old daughter walk around mm. my house and I'm trying to picture what the world for her looks like in 10 years should this trend continue. It's really terrifying. I mean, we're already hearing the stories of we can go back to Idaho, for example, um, and this transfer, this transporting minors bill. We're already hearing stories from hospitals out there shutting down their maternal health wards because of the risk of criminal liability that fall from uh, these abortion bans. Doctors are just trying to treat patients. And we know that pregnancy is a medical condition that is unique to every person who experiences it and requires physicians to have the ability to exercise their discretion to allow people who are experiencing pregnancy, pregnant people, to make decisions based on their individualized health care needs. It's too complicated to regulate in the ways in which conservatives have tried to. And the end result of these bans remaining on the books and what I would say as part of that um, would be people becoming complacent to the idea that we can fully roll back a fundamental human right in this country is that the world looks very different for our daughters than it did for me and you. You know, I have a daughter who is 12 right now and my son is 18 graduating from high school and they do neither one of them right now face the same future that I had as a 49-year-old woman as a result of the Dobbs decision, because reproductive autonomy does affect men as well. That was actually somewhere I was going to segue to, because this conversation often stays focused on abortion access, but these laws have an impact on all of the ways, right, in which women, and especially women of color from low-income communities, are going to be able to take care of their reproductive health in totality. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. You know, one of the important things to remember is that, um, you know, one in three people who have an abortion also already has has a family. And when we criminalize health care, as uh, conservatives are trying to do when they criminalize abortion, that becomes a family separation policy. We are then putting 
families into a criminal justice system simply by trying to access reproductive health care. That's one impact on it. I already touched on the impact in terms of medical training. We are losing actual services, you know, um, and this is doesn't even matter where you live anymore, because if you are in rural parts of this country, it's devastating. If you're now in urban centers as well, with the proliferation of Catholic healthcare in reproductive healthcare spaces, there's no guarantee that if you go in presenting with a miscarriage, for example, that you will be seen in time to not also develop sepsis. We are voluntarily, as a matter of public policy, saying that pregnancy is now once again a life-threatening condition always, even though we clearly have the medical means to, to not have that be a reality. And who does this impact uh, most in terms of its, whether it's into a criminalization pipeline or into worsening maternal uh, mortality and health outcomes? women of color, black women specifically, right. I don't think it's any coincidence that we're seeing these bans proliferate, excuse me, across this country. At the same time, we are seeing black maternal health outcomes plummet in this country. And those two things need to be spoken together in the same sentence. Yeah, and one of the other things I think about, right, is as these laws pass, it also impacts funding for organizations yes. like Planned Parenthood, but even, you know, smaller clinics. And like when I was a young woman, and I didn't have insurance. That's where I went for STD testing. That's where I went mm -hmm. for my, you know, well, at that time we had to do annual pap smears. I mean, like I'm thinking about the, the ripple effect here of not having access to, to very basic um, things that should, you know, be a way of life and, and that not be a normal thing to just go down the clinic and get your annual or, or, or a mammogram or any of those things. Absolutely. And we have the data to show that that those early, you know, sort of low lift interventions saves lives. And I think that's an important point to stress because this is policy pushed forward by conservatives and the uh, Republican Party that is designed to really be catastrophic. We will see actual poor outcomes. People will die. I mean, these bans are going on the same time that conservatives are launching lawsuits in places like Texas attacking the viability of Title X in general. Title X is the federal family planning program that provides grants for a whole host of services, many that you just described, the, you know, for, for uh, folks who don't have private insurance and can't afford that out of pocket. These are basic public health programs that we have worked decades on to establish and are just now starting to see some of the fruits uh, bear from that. And it's no coincidence that conservatives have their sights on it. I mean, the same legal architect of the Texas abortion ban that overturned Roe functionally by allowing, um, you know, any person to go out and try to enforce its six-week ban, that same legal architect is now responsible for a decision that strikes at the heart of the Affordable Care Act's preventative care generally. It's not a Jessica, coincidence. I wanna, 
I, I want to go back to uh, the Idaho law just, yeah. uh, for a couple of minutes. Uh, this term, abortion trafficking, mm-hmm. can you please define what that is for my listeners and, and perhaps give a couple of examples? Like, what could people get hemmed up for uh, when this law passes? Sure. So the idea of abortion trafficking is literally transporting or making transportation accessible uh, for somebody who is, abor- you know, abortion minded looking for abortion care. Uh, the the de- definition in the actual legislation is much vaguer and should be of considerable concern. But some of the things that could be considered abortion trafficking in this um in this new piece of legislation could be driving a minor to a P.O. box to pick up a delivery of abortion pills. You know, it could be transporting them. We think of it, you know, sort of broadly as transporting across state lines. That's that's what we normally think of trafficking. But it's it's not that. And, you know, Idaho is very specific in why it's doing it. When you look at where it exists um, on uh, the map, you know, Washington, Oregon, Colorado are all close, um, you know, California by some degree in terms of care. Um, they know that they're, that folks are already leaving the state to do so. That's, you know, the, the sort of top line that it's targeted for, but really what does enforcing that look like? I mean, if the idea of taking someone to, uh, appointment at a Planned Parenthood outside of the state, for example, could suddenly be, you know, how, how's law enforcement going to know? You know, we have to now talk about probable cause for a stop, you know, um, there, when I talk about these laws being this wide um, expansion of police power, those are the kinds of things that I'm referring to. Jessica, the, the, the Supreme Court ruling that felled Roe v. Wade stated in Justice Brett Kavanaugh's concurring opinion that the right to interstate travel is still protected. How is Idaho getting around that fact with this law? Uh, they don't care. I don't have a different answer for that. I mean, you know, they are they are really, truly testing that um, theory. The right to travel is absolutely a fundamental uh, constitutional right, but so is the right to abortion. Um, and Brett Kavanaugh also said that he respected precedent and he voted to overturn Roe versus Wade entirely. So I don't think that we should take what he has to say in his concurrence beyond sort of face value. <laughs> We, we talked about the impact of these laws, right, on the public generally, but talk about specifically how this kind of law will or, or, or can impact minors, particularly minors that don't have, you know, the kind of relationship with their parents where they can say, you know, this, this, this has happened and this is what I need to do. Absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the ways in which the anti-abortion movement most successfully moves the needle on its policies is by um, rolling them out um, on minors. Uh, They have the least uh, legal means to fight back um, broadly in this country. Um, And with regard to abortion politics, it's no different. So already, if you are a minor in Idaho, it is next to impossible to access reproductive health care without your parental without parental involvement in some capacity. A law like this that specifically hems up a class of people, in this case, uh, minors, for enforcement 
creates a suspicion around their accessing care in general. And what we know in terms of impact is that folks will look to other means and, um, you know, oftentimes less either effective or, you know, potentially dangerous avenues. And so the idea that conservatives would suggest, for example, that facilitating necessary and sometimes life-saving health care is a potential crime is, again, a point that I just want to keep coming back to. Because once it's accepted for one class of persons, it is accepted for a second class of persons and a third class of persons. Jessica, right now we're seeing, right, this is a state's rights issue. How close do you think we are to a national ban? Is that is that a real possibility? It's a very real possibility through a variety of avenues. Um, one, we already know that legislatively this is what Republicans intend to do should they um, capture the presidency and Congress in 2024. This is really their only plan for leading, um, truly. But beyond that, we already see conservatives working to, on ways to restrict abortion nationwide. And I would, again, point to this lawsuit out of Texas. We are not even a full year from the Dobbs decision. And already conservatives are looking to implement anti-abortion policy nationwide. Matthew Kaczmarek's opinion is not limited to Texas not being able to, Texans not being able to access uh, Mifepristone. What he is trying to do is order it off the market across the country. So that includes California, Colorado, where I'm at, New York, Illinois. And his opinion goes one step further and does so not just because he believes that the FDA abused his, its authority, but because he believes that life begins at conception as a constitutional proposition. That sets the stage for making it illegal for states to protect abortion. We are already in the first stages of a fight for a national abortion ban. You, you brought up the, the presidential election. We are entering the election season right now. How do you anticipate reproductive rights being utilized as a political football over the next two years? I mean, that's the, the exact term. I think one of the things that we are seeing for progressives and Democrats is that uh, reproductive autonomy is a central issue for voters. They understand the devastation of the Dobbs decision. And when Democrats and progressives run directly on the link between reproductive autonomy and the health of our democracy, they do very well. And they do very well in places like Kansas and Michigan and Wisconsin. And I hope that national leaders are paying attention to that message because what conservatives are doing is using the federal courts to implement their policy because it is that unpopular. So I anticipate this being a huge issue in the 2024 election. Jessica, this show's about exposing, agitating, and building. I want to just spend a minute on the building piece. What kind of organizing is happening on the ground? What kind of movements are popping up? Where, where do you see hope in terms of uh, folks in the streets and, and uh, beating some of this back? 
the beautiful thing about the reproductive justice movement is that its advocates and activists um, I can are truly tireless. I wish that they had the opportunity to take a break, but I'm glad um, that for all the work that they are doing, particularly at this moment in making sure that abortion pills maintain a steady supply in this country and getting them into the hands of people who need them. Uh, so organizations like Plan C and Shout Your Abortion and I Need an A, for example, right now are really doing excellent work in making sure that people who need abortion pills know where to get them, know how to get them, and know how to use them safely. Also, there's a groundswell of legal advocacy work happening around uh, folks who may find themselves uh, swept up in the criminal justice system as a result of it. So, you know, the legal repro hotlines that are uh, created now, the ACLU has just started a new project. Folks like Pregnancy Justice that do direct representation and legal voice um, out uh, on the West Coast that do direct representation of folks who have been swept up in the criminalization process, not even just because of abortion bans. Um, so there is a real good network of resistance work out there. All right, Jessica, we've got to leave it there. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Hope you'll come back soon. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. Law and Disorder.